You're listening to the teachings at Acton Church, a group of real and relevant followers of Jesus. This message, Eyewitnesses to an Empty Tomb, was given by Pastor John McGuire on Easter, April 5th, 2015, and is part two of the Eyewitnesses series. All right. Um, we believe, Lord God, we believe uh, in this day we've come here today, we've gathered here uh, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the day that you rose. Lord, we do believe that you died, we do believe that you were buried, and we do believe that you rose again. This is a resurrection movement and not just a Messiah movement. This is um, an eternal life movement. This is a forgiveness movement. There's so many things that you have done that we will try to capture today, try to remember today. Lord, help us. We commit this service to you in every way. We ask that you will be glorified in it, that you will be um, at work in this room to move and to talk to us. I pray that those who come here today who have not believed that they may begin this process in, in their heart, in their life, to believe. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, many of you may be familiar with this fresco. This is a fresco image of Alexander the Great. You are all probably taught about Alexander the Great in your history class. What I find interesting about Alexander the Great is that, according to um, historians, there is no direct eyewitness records of Alexander the Great. The biography of Alexander the Great was written 300 years after he lived. The primary sources written by people who actually knew Alexander or who gathered information from men who served with Alexander are all lost. Apart from a few inscriptions and fragments, even this picture is from the Babylonian Empire, from the Persian Empire. Given that amount of time passing, there was no one alive that could refute the exploits or falsehoods. Yet we all would contend that Alexander the Great really did live. We just don't have a whole lot of eyewitness testimony. We've been um, moving through a series. Today we're going to continue that series that's just called Eyewitnesses. Uh, You need to know that it's not just kind of a matter of faith and, hey, we believe this, so we're just going to believe it. Kind of like you did this morning, you know, you know where those Easter eggs came from, don't you? You know, like, like that kind of thing. Like we treat, sometimes we treat Easter and the idea that Jesus rose in a similar kind of manner. Kind of like this, it's this really great fable that we've just continued to pass on. And um, not the fact that this is actually historical evidence. It's provable. It's historically provable. If you were a... a if you were a CSI agent and you were um, coming into a crime scene, there were several things that you would do, but you would look for the evidence. You would, you would visit the evidence. You would um, consider what it was that people were saying and what happened and what kind of evidence that we have. I just want you to know there's credible evidence that Jesus Christ existed. There's credible evidence. Um, some writers suggest a few credible criterias to decide if something is really historically correct. Here's one. Historical claims are strong when they're supported by multiple independent sources. In other words, when there's just one witness, it's hard to know if that was really true or not. But if there's multiple witnesses and multiple sources, it's more logical that it's true. If multiple witnesses observe the crime, observe the crime scene, then all of a sudden things have changed. If it's just one person who saw it, then it's just someone's individual testimony. It's hard to know if they really saw it. Historical claims, which are also attested to by enemies, are most likely to be authentic. 
since enemies are unsympathetic. In other words, someone who didn't like the person, if they also give witness to something happening, that's some credible witness. That's good historical evidence. Somebody who has no reason, you know, it makes sense that disciples would make up some story, but what about the soldiers? Why would they want to make up a story? Authentic, since enemies are unsympathetic and they're often hostile witnesses. Historical claims which include embarrassing admissions reflect honest reporting rather than creative storytelling. They're in the, you're in the middle of the crime, and so you're a criminal who's kind of telling what, about the crime you saw. Embarrassing. Historians, historical claims are strong when supported by eyewitness testimony. This is, uh, in other words, uh, not just somebody who saw this from a distance, but somebody who was standing next to it. If we're in a big stadium and we look across to the other side of the stadium and we see someone's face, we see certain characteristics about that someone. But because we're so far away, because we're not right next to them, we can't see the details. So we may observe some things, but we can't understand as closely as the person who's sitting next to that person what color their eyes are. The further in history you get away from the event, the harder it is to remember. That's why the first 48 is so important. To find out while everyone still is remembering what's going on. That's what eyewitness testimony is. Somebody who was there. Historical claims which are supported by early testimony are more reliable, less likely to be the result of legendary development. In other words, the further along it gets before it's recorded, the harder it is to prove that it really was true. When did Alexander the Great start being called Alexander the Great? We don't know. But somewhere along the line, we decided to call him Alexander the Great. And because of other records and other sources, not because of his own sources or because of his own general's records, or because of eyewitness testimony of people who traveled in that army, we have very little results about Alexander the Great. That's what we call eyewitness. That's what this is. This series is eyewitness testimony. In other words, you don't have to just kind of believe by faith and hope that this is really true. This is really true. We have eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness is a person who's personally seen something happen. And they can give first-hand account to this. Last week we talked about this exact idea, which was the eyewitness of a dead Messiah. There was this Messiah movement that was going on. The disciples were following this, this guy Jesus around, and he was doing all these incredible miracles, and he was doing all these incredible things, and they saw this eyewitness of the Messiah, but the Messiah actually gets crucified on a cross. We looked at that story last week, and as part of that crucifixion, Jesus dies Messiah dies. They fully believed he was the Messiah. In fact, they really were hoping that even as he was nailed to a cross, that he was just going to kind of come down off the cross and set up his kingdom. But instead, they watch him as he speaks his way, sputters his way through the last words spoken on the cross. It's finished. And then it says he breathes his last. I want to read you how that account how that account goes, just as a setup for what's happening today. Here's how it reads. This is Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. Don't say stuff like that if you can't prove it. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. 
Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. This is Friday night. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, Saturday, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than his first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Yet Jesus hangs on a cross. He gets put in uh, a grave. We understood this as what people passed on from the very earliest time, from 33 AD when Jesus had died, as this eyewitness creed, this thing that people kind of said when they were describing what had happened. They would say, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. This was the starting statements about Jesus. It was that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Eyewitness uh, testimony is vital in the collection of historical evidence. So um, if we don't have eyewitness testimony, we just have to do, dig a little bit deeper. Um, but I want you to hear clearly what I'm saying. There is credible historical evidence that affirms the reliability that Jesus Christ lived in Galilee, was put to death in Jerusalem by crucifixion in 33 A.D., In fact, we have eyewitness testimony from direct eyewitnesses in the earliest of sources at the time that he lived and that from eyewitness records from both supportive and hostile sources that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again. Now, really, um, responses to the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, you really only have two choices. First is the faith approach. I call this the dad approach, okay? The dad approach is this. The reason this is true is because I said it was true. All right, dad? Yeah? Yeah, dads? You've heard this before. Like, the, the one way that we respond to the resurrection is we believe it's true because the Bible says it's true. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, so that's the dad approach, and that's a, that's a okay approach, that's a good approach. I believe that every word that's found in the Bible is true, that it is inspired uh, by God, that it's God's very words. That's good, but I just want you to know that you don't have to just use the dad approach here, okay? That there is historical evidence, that there is real credible evidence, and that we can take the minimal facts approach. Minimal facts is, is the amount of facts that we can come to by... Uh, taking all of the witnesses, taking all of the historical data and observing it and saying, we can all agree to at least 
this bit of truth. It's what's called the historical facts approach. In fact, the truth of Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from historical evidence. In other words, like, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then Paul actually says that your faith is useless. You're wasting your Easter morning, y'all. But I'm here to tell you that it is true. But here's the issue. At issue is this. We have been told to believe our faith proves the resurrection. In other words, because we believe it, that's how we know that Jesus rose from the dead. But I say this. Because he rose from the dead, that's why we believe it. That's how it works, you see. That's what the earliest record wanted us to get sh- be sure that we understood. That you're not just believing in anything, and it's great, and it's important, and it's critical that Christ came and he died for our sin. But if he hadn't risen from the dead, then we wouldn't know that his sacrifice for our sin was acceptable to God. But because he rose from the dead, from the dead then we know that it was an acceptable sacrifice. God himself raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, this is good stuff. You see, because what we find out is that while, um, while our faith is based on this one event, that not having this event would make it just like every other religion in the world today, which was you had a belief in something, but that belief died out. Well... Today, we're just going to talk together about the eyewitness testimony of an empty tomb. Last week, we talked about the eyewitness testimony of a dead Messiah and a buried Messiah. Today, we talk about the eyewitness testimony of an empty tomb. It's contained in four different gospel accounts, and I want to read those accounts. These are eyewitness accounts. In fact, the first eyewitness account comes from the book of Mark. The book of Mark was written... Um, based on the testimony of Peter, the apostle, who walked around with Jesus, and on the Q sources. The Q sources were kind of these oral traditions that had been passed along. It's important that we know that a Q source is is a credible source because what happens as you pass a testimony along is that someone along the line goes, well, that's not true. Uh, Someone who saw something says, no, that's not true. So the stuff that survives over time Uh, By the time the book of Mark, which is the first gospel that's written, it's now A.D. 70. Number of years, 40 years have passed since the time that Jesus has been on the earth. But we have eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter and the sources that were compiled through the Q sources. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Here's the truth. They if they thought he was going to rise again, they would have taken the front row and they'd have just waited. That's what I'd have done. All right? Kind of like Thanksgiving Eve when you're waiting for the best deals. This is the best deal. Okay? You'd be in the very front row just waiting because you knew he was going to rise from the dead because it was so clear to you they had no idea. They're walking to the tomb. They're taking more spices to try to anoint the body that had already been decoupaged in his, in his tomb clothes. It was tight. It was not somebody who fell asleep. This was somebody who had died, Jesus Christ, who had died. They go early in the morning, and on their way, they're saying, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? They're just worried because they know how big this stone is. This is eyewitness testimony. They're like, 
how are we ever going to move this stone? All of us combined can't roll this stone away so that we can go in and put this ointment on this body. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Eyewitness testimony, very large, this stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You think? There's somebody there. Like this angel is sitting there next to where Jesus had been laid. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. Uh Uh-huh, me too. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were terrified. They had seen an empty tomb somewhere. They had been there, it says in Matthew. They actually, remember, had gone with Joseph of Arimathea. They had seen where they had laid the tomb. They saw Joseph of Arimathea and the others roll the tomb, roll the stone in front of the tomb. They knew what should have been there, and they knew what wasn't there. Unfortunately, they're good enough, they're, they're smart enough uh, to listen closely to what this angel is saying. And now all of a sudden they're faced with a challenge because in Jewish culture in the first century, women are not even called into a court case as a witness. Can't trust what a woman says. That's how culture was. That's how Roman culture was. That's how Hebrew culture was. You don't call a woman to be an eyewitness. Just don't do that. And the very first witness of the resurrection of the empty tomb is these women. That's according to Mark. Well, um, Matthew says it this way. Matthew, of course, was one of the 12 disciples. He was one who was an eyewitness himself. And he followed the eyewitness testimony uh, that he had to remember things. By the time the book of Matthew is written, Matthew is older, and he's sharing this, this, uh, this information. And then they're also using the book of Mark to, to remind Matthew. So you find a lot of parallels between Matthew and Mark. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Wait, I thought he was inside. Well, this angel, according to Matthew, was sitting on the stone. Now, that's cool. So somehow one of them is telling this story. Like, wait, if you're making up a story, you both got to get your story straight, right? Like, if Matthew's copying off Mark, then he, like, copy off. No, 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 they're writing down this eyewitness testimony. Uh, We have a police officer here. He could tell you. Two people can see the same scene and see something different about what has happened. This is eyewitness testimony. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They fainted. All right? Tough Roman soldiers. Out cold. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with with, fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. That's Matthew's account. So the book of Luke is written by Luke, who was a doctor who was 
very interested in details. And if you read the first couple of verses of the book of Luke, you'll see how he came to everything that's written in the book. It says that I sought out, that he sought out to write down every and, and uh, take eyewitness testimony from everybody who knew anything about the story of Jesus to prove that it was true. He wrote it in an orderly account. He was detail-oriented, and he wanted us to know every single detail. It's why in the book of Luke we have the story of Jesus. He probably interviewed, interviewed Jesus' Jesus' mom and got Jesus' birth story, the only one that records the birth story. Like some eyewitness details. Luke collects this eyewitness de- details, and he writes it down in the book of Luke. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd be prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. An empty tomb. They're eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Maybe one of them was on the stone and the other one was sitting to the right of the, where the body was supposed to lay. I don't know, but we have two of them stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise? Then they remembered. So we know that on the very moment, they weren't like waiting in the front row. They weren't expecting this. I just watched Finding Jesus. All right? Sorry, Bill, but like they all like are gathered in this tomb. Did anybody see it? They're all kind of gathered in this tomb and they all look at each other and they give this kind of wink, wink smile. We knew it was going to happen. No, they had no clue. They really did not know. They really had no clue. They thought he would rise at the end of all time when the final resurrection happens, but they did not expect him to rise on the third day. They weren't expecting this. And they came in, and you remember that even even Mary's testimony said, I thought to the gardener, she says, tell me where you laid his body so I can have him back. She thought, they thought he was dead. They knew he was dead. They had helped to embalm him. They had helped to carry him off the cross. They knew it. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as idle tale. Crazy women. Crazy women, crazy story, empty tomb. We're going to have to check this out ourselves. I like that Jesus shows up to the women first. The women were the faithful ones, really. The women were the ones who stuck with Jesus. You see them outside the, the torture chambers. You see them at the foot of the cross. You see them helping get the body of Jesus down. You see them being the first ones to come after the Sabbath to embalm the body with additional spices. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Like, what does this mean? His body's gone. Peter now, now the men see it. In fact, one of those men writes the book of John. He's one of the eyewitnesses himself. He writes this record himself to say, this is what I saw. John the Apostle says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one who Jesus loved. He's talking about himself. He doesn't say, and and me, I was there. 
Like the one that Jesus loved is how he refers to himself. So John's just talking about himself. This is kind of funny, this next part. And said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going toward the tomb. Here's the funny part. Both of them were running together, but the other disciples outran Peter. The other disciple, he's like, man, was I fast when I was young. Because he's writing this now. He's like uh, 70 years old. And now he's writing this, this story, compiling the story about, about what he saw and what happened. And he's like, man, I was so fast. I got to the tomb before Peter. I outran Peter. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth. This is detailed account. This is eyewitness account. I saw Peter look, at, and he, then he noticed this. He noticed this folded cloth. Like, why do we get this detail? Why is this important? All these other linen cloths are laying there. His body's not there. Why do we get this detail? Are you ready for this? Like, this, will preach. this is enough to go home and, and dance on your kitchen table before your Easter meal. So, um, in culture, in Hebrew culture, carpenters would have a cloth. They would also, uh, when they were, they were doing work, they would strap this cloth on so that as they did their construction, as they built their uh, table or as they built, uh, carved the stone, they would have something just to be able to wipe that cloth on. And if you got contacted by the carpenter, hey, your table's done, come pick it up. You would go to their house, and if they weren't there... You would look in, and, and the common practice was you would understand that if your piece of furniture was done, that carpenter's cloth would be laid right on it. So you could look at your piece of furniture and go, okay, it's done. Here's the carpenter's cloth. He's saying, it is finished. All right. Yeah, so they're telling you this story, so you all know this, okay? John wants you to know that Jesus takes off the face cloth throws it on the table next to those linens and he says, it's done. The sacrifice that I made on the cross to pay for your sin was acceptable to God. I took your sin in my body, paid for that sin and when it was presented to God, he accepted it as an acceptable sacrifice. And it was God who brought Jesus back to life. It was God who rolled the stone away. And it was Jesus who said it's done. Okay, so somebody after church comes up and they have to correct me, okay? After first service. And they said, here's what I heard about that. And this will preach just as well. In Hebrew culture, when you get up to eat, if you're not done eating... If you're, if you're done eating, then you just grab your napkin and you throw it on your, on your plate. But if you just are going out because you've got to go to the bathroom, then what you do is you fold your napkin and you put it on your plate because you're coming back. All right? All right. You share, you share the next thing you heard, and we'll just keep sharing uh, about these, okay? I love it, because that's exactly how this happens. Jesus is saying, uh-uh, like it's not done yet. 
uh, they fold it up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They still don't get it. They know the tomb's empty. They know his body's not there. They know the soldiers have run for cover, but they don't know where the body of Jesus is, and they're still not quite sure that the soldiers didn't take his body or that the Jewish authorities didn't come and steal his body. All they know is that there is an empty tomb and they have seen the empty tomb. They know they didn't steal the body. Right? They know that. They know his body isn't there. Here's one other account. Uh, As if the women's eyewitness testimony of an empty tomb isn't enough, and as if the disciples' testimony of an empty tomb isn't enough, here's a third person's testimony, and this is hostile testimony. This is the other guy's testimony. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest that all that had taken place. They told him everything. They told him about the earthquake, and they told him about we fainted, and they told him about his body's gone, and the stones rolled away, and we don't know where it is, and some of them are still back at the tomb, guarding the tomb, because they, they want to keep the area safe and clean and And the other group of guards are now in front of the Jewish council and in front of the Roman, and they're giving testimony. Look at the testimony that they give. The body's not there. Hostile testimony saying, no, 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 you got to understand, the body's gone. Hostile testimony giving record that the body's gone. To which the elders, the council, say this. First, they gave him a sufficient sum of money to shut him up. Then they said, tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And this this comes to the governor's ears. We'll also satisfy him. We'll pay him off too. You just say, disciples stole body. We were asleep. Matthew records it like this. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story, this story that's written in Matthew in AD 80, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What story? The story that Jesus rose from the dead? No. The story that they were paid off. So what story exists? What story travels forward? The story that Jesus, uh, that uh, the disciples stole the body? Not that story. The story that they were paid off went on from that day forward. Okay, so was the tomb really empty? That's the question, right? I mean, our faith rests on this very, this very thing. If this is not an acceptable sacrifice, y'all are wasting your Easter morning. If it's not an acceptable sacrifice, then you should consider some other religions. But I'm telling you, it was an acceptable sacrifice because God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. Was the tomb really empty? Well, here's some consideration. Joseph of Arimathea, he's one of the Jewish council. He's a believer who followed Jesus, but he's on the Jewish council. And so when they started in their meeting to say, the body's gone, what should we do? He says, the body was dead. I buried it myself. I took the pulse. He was dead. He used my grave. Either we're going to be conspirators in this because I let him, I'm on the Jewish council, and I let them use this, 
Or you can't say, you can't say he just merely was, had fallen asleep. So that never comes up as a possibility from the Jewish council. They say, well, let's say that the disciples stole the body. Well, if you're, um, if you're seeking to make up a story about the resurrection, don't have women be the first eyewitnesses. Okay? Culturally, bad mistake. All right? Especially a group of them. They'll just, they just get together and came up with some crazy story. Those women, those zany women. All right? Third, having the first witness be a former demon-possessed prostitute is not good for a story. Uh, Magdala was a Roman um, barracks. Mary from Magdala was a woman who serviced the Roman barracks before she came to Jesus and got forgiveness from her sin. Mary Magdalene is the first to the tomb. She becomes the first witness. A woman who the Bible says was possessed with seven demons, like two isn't enough, seven demons. She's the first one who becomes witness to the tomb. There are multiple early witnesses of an empty tomb, including the eyewitness of the soldiers, and they're giving embarrassing attestation. Their job, protect the tomb from the disciples who want to steal the body. Oops, we fell asleep. Really? You want to say that? Like this is embarrassing testimony. His body's gone. We don't know what happened to it. No competing alternate story. In other words, no other story kind of took on any life around this, which goes to show that the story was more accurate because every time someone raised some alternate counter story, they would go, that's not true. So-and-so gave testimony that said this, but this testimony is making it through. No alternate test, no alternate story, no discovered body. If they just found Jesus' body, they could prove that while he was, while the tomb was empty, they just took his body somewhere else. They could not find the body. And there are no later confessions or denials from any of the disciples, although they are all tortured before they die. One of them surely would have kind of gone, all right, all right, I'm coming clean. This was all a made-up story. Not one of them. Then the last area was just this idea that the disciples weren't expecting this. Like, in other words, if you're going to fabricate a story, use some existing, you know, like some existing alternate story of a resurrection or of some other idea. Don't make up some new story so that you first got to teach the new story so that people can believe the new story. Like, use that there's going to be this final resurrection. Or use that Jesus did fall asleep and that not even the Roman Empire can conquer our Jesus, and he busts out like Superman, and like he, you see, you can't even kill Jesus. Like, that's a better story. But not that a Messiah comes and he dies and he's buried. Was the tomb really empty? I'm going to ask the praise band to come. They're going to close with a song. So this eyewitness creed, we found, we find in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, in the first few few verses, it's basically Paul in A.D. 55 
is writing down something that's been passed along for quite some time. It's, it's what everybody has been saying. It's been this outspoken statement. And if any part of this statement were false, every time someone spoke it, they would be giving false witness. And as Jewish people, they would have understood that a false witness is someone who should be stoned. A false witness is someone who, who you should take out back and teach them a lesson about giving false witness. But instead, every one of the disciples and all of these people begin to give this testimony that the tomb was empty. He rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, here's the scriptures. This spoken a thousand years before the time of Christ. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Psalm 16.10. He's not going to be in the tomb long enough to start the decay process. The Holy One. Psalm 49, also spoken a thousand years before the time of Christ. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Isaiah 53, spoken 700 years before the time of Jesus. After the suffering of his soul, Messiah's soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. I'm one of those many. And he will bear their iniquities. I'm some of those iniquities he bore. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide. They're going to even have two holidays for him. Like he'll get his portion among the great. God will, will recognize throughout all history that this one is different than everyone else. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Psalm 68, written a thousand years before the time of Christ, says, When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you may dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Yeah, Jesus. The tomb was empty. His body wasn't there. His resurrection proves his acceptance by the Father for the sins of the world. But if all of that testimony is enough, remember the testimony that Jesus himself gave. In John chapter 3, it says this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you give us for doing these things? In other words, you're the Messiah. Give us a sign. In another place in, um, in, uh, in uh, Matthew and Mark, it says that, uh, he says, what a wicked generation you are. You always are asking for some sign. Do some sign to prove you're the Messiah. He, he says, I'll tell you what sign I'm going to do. I'm going to do the same sign as the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and then he came out alive. I'm going to give you that exact same sign. In this case, he says, if you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. They all thought he was talking about the temple that he was preaching in. They said to him, are you kidding? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it up in three days? Are you serious? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and here's what's recorded. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things. Like, we didn't get it. They were still so dense. Dense disciples like us, all right? We hear the word of God and we just don't do it. We don't believe what he's saying, that he's going to actually rise from the dead in three days, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that the tomb is empty, and that he rose again. So, um, as if it wasn't enough. I don't know if, if you've studied any other world religions, there is record, you know, that Muhammad's body had disappeared. But you know what there's no record of? Anybody seeing that body any longer. I say that to tell you this. You're not going to want to miss next week. Because it, it, it would be enough that his body wasn't there. But in just a second, on the same day, he's going to start appearing to people. And not just one person. Hundreds of people. And that's the story. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the people who have already died, They've perished. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are people to be pitied. I like that. Y'all are sorry people if the resurrection didn't happen. Okay, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. Read 1 Corinthians 15 today. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, that'd be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of, of the dead. Oh, that's good stuff. You got to read that whole chapter. Um, it's just saying that he's the one who came, made it possible for you to have eternal life. It's good stuff. Uh, that's what the resurrection's about. If you have never given your life to Christ, if you've never um, had a moment in your, in your life where you asked for forgiveness, for his sacrifice to be applied to the wrong that you have done, um, then you don't know what it's like to be forgiven by God for your sin. But uh, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And anybody who confesses their sin, he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive you from your sins and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And those who do believe have eternal life. They get eternal life. It's a gift of God. It's not by works or else we would boast about it. It is a gift from God. Uh, Easter is a great reminder about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's time for you to believe, if you've never believed before. It's time to understand that Jesus came for this purpose, to save you and to save me from our sin. Uh, Jesus, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this reminder about Easter. Thank you that you rose again to demonstrate that you were an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Um, Lord, I, now I pray that you would just help people who are gathered here to begin this process of understanding that you came for a purpose, you came for them. You came to deliver them, to be a savior of the world. Um, thank you, God. Um, we celebrate this Easter. I pray that you'll just bless the time that all these families will spend with each other. If someone is alone on this Easter, Lord, I pray that you, your very presence will be with them as they eat, as they celebrate this day. Um, and we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus, who holds all power and all dominion and all authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ogden Church, feel free to visit our website at www.ogdenchurch.org.